Chapter 2, Part 3 of Twenty Years of the Republic, 1885-1905, to by Harry Thurston Peck. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Two Years of President Cleveland, Part 3 President Cleveland's first message to Congress, Note 20, page 80, was a long and carefully written document which was received with general approval both in this country and abroad. Note 21, page 80. The recommendations which attracted most attention had to do with, one, the development of the Navy, which in its existing condition, Mr. Cleveland characterized as merely a shabby ornament to the government, two, a reform of the land laws, which should prevent immense tracts of territory from being acquired by single individuals or great corporations, three, a reduction of tariff duties upon the imported necessaries of life, and four, an extension of the reform of the civil service. In making this last recommendation, however, there were a few lines intended as a rebuke to some of the President's overzealous critics. He wrote, Civil service reform does not require that those who in subordinate positions should fail in yielding their best service or who are incompetent should be retained simply because they are in place. The whining of a clerk discharged for indolence or incompetency, who, though he gained his place by the worst possible operations of the spoils system, suddenly discovers that he is entitled to protection under the sanction of civil service reform, represents an ideal no less absurd than the clamor of the applicant who claims the vacant position as his compensation for the most questionable party work. But there was something else in the message which, though it attracted little general attention at the time, possessed, in view of what happened in succeeding years, an extraordinary significance. More than five pages of the message were devoted to the question of silver. By the so-called Bland-Allison Law, enacted February 28, 1878, it had been provided that the coinage of the silver dollar of 412.5 grains should be resumed. This dollar was made a legal tender for public and private debts, and a provision directed its compulsory coinage at the rate of not less than two million dollars, or more than four million dollars per month. The Bland-Allison bill was passed by a Democratic House and a Republican Senate. President Hayes vetoed it, and it was at once passed over his veto by heavy majorities. The message which Mr. Cleveland now sent to Congress asked earnest attention to the working of this law. He pointed out that silver had steadily fallen in intrinsic value, that a so-called bimetallic conference with European nations for the purpose of establishing internationally a common ratio between gold and silver had failed, and that if the coinage of silver should be continued under the Bland-Allison Act, the hoarding of gold would presently begin. The following sentences from this portion of the message are well worth recalling. The desire to utilize the silver product of the country should not lead to a misuse or the perversion of this power. Up to the present time, only about 50 million of the silver dollars so coined have actually found their way into circulation, leaving more than 165 million in the possession of the government. Every month, two millions of gold in the public treasury are paid out for two millions or more of silver dollars to be added to the idle mass already accumulated. If continued long enough, this operation will result in the substitution of silver for all the gold the government owns applicable to its general purposes. The nearer the period approaches when it, the government, will be obliged to offer silver in payment of its obligations, the greater inducement there will be to hoard gold against depreciation in the value of silver or for the purpose of speculating. This hoarding of gold has already begun. 
when the time comes that gold has been withdrawn from circulation then will be apparent the difference between the real value of the silver dollar and a dollar in gold and the two coins will part company gold will be at a premium over silver banks which have substituted gold for the deposits of their customers may pay them with silver bought with such gold thus making a handsome profit rich speculators will sell their hoarded gold to their neighbors who needed to liquidate their foreign debts at a ruinous premium over silver and the laboring men and women of the land most defenseless of all will find that the dollar received for the wage of their toil has sadly shrunk in its purchasing power mr cleveland quoted the words uttered by daniel webster in the senate in eighteen thirty four the very man of all others who has the deepest interest in a sound currency and who suffers most by mischievous legislation in money matters is the man who earns his daily bread by his daily toil he then proceeded to recommend that the compulsory coinage of silver dollars directed by the bland act be suspended these striking sentences received but scant attention at the time far greater interest was felt in the possibility of a conflict between the democratic president and the republican senate which now elected senator john sherman to be its president pro tempore and which had a republican majority of six the house was democratic by a majority of forty-two with this division of power it was obvious that no party measures pure and simple could be enacted the field therefore was left clear for party skirmishing it was not long before the republican majority in the senate made its first move toward putting cleveland in a hole as has already been explained the president had removed or suspended a number of republican officials and had appointed democrats in their stead in so doing he had not made public his reasons for removal or suspension other than the general statement that this action was for the good of the public service the republican senators sought now to bring him to an explicit and detailed accounting whether he refused or whether he acceded to their wish they hoped to have it appear that he had removed republicans solely from partisan motives in this way his professed regard for civil service reform would be discredited his independent supporters would be estranged and the president himself would appear somewhat in the light of a hypocrite the case of mr george m duskin was selected as a suitable one upon which to make the fight mr duskin had been united states district attorney for the southern district of alabama on july seventeenth he had been suspended by executive order and mr john d burnett had been designated to perform the duties of the office in duskin's place when congress met the president nominated mr burnett for appointment as duskin's successor the senate passed a resolution requiring the attorney-general to send to it all the papers relating to mr duskin's suspension the attorney-general by order of the president informed the senate that it was not considered that the public interests would be promoted by so transmitting these papers and other documents thereupon the judiciary committee of the senate passed a resolution censuring the attorney-general and by inference the president it was evidently intended to make a formal demand upon the president himself for these papers senators of the united states have an exalted opinion of their own dignity they are fond of calling the chamber to which they belong the most august deliberative body in the world they claimed moreover in eighteen eighty six that inasmuch as the assent of the senate was required to confirm the appointment of certain officers these officers were not subject to removal by the president without the senate's permission this claim was based upon the so-called tenure of office act passed in eighteen sixty seven during the conflict between congress and president johnson 
To be sure, the more stringent features of the act had been stricken out in 1869 when General Grant assumed the presidency. Nevertheless, the Senate felt that, between its own overpowering greatness and its somewhat tenuous legal right, it could overawe a new and inexperienced president. Mr. Cleveland, however, did not wait for the issue to be fully joined between the executive and the Senate. Like a good general, he attacked boldly before his opponents had fully matured their plans. On March 1, 1886, he sent a message to the Senate in which he took high ground. It is by no means conceded, wrote he, that the Senate has the right in any case to review the act of the executive in removing or suspending a public officer. Then he declared that the Attorney General had acted solely under executive direction. He said that the papers relating to the Duskin case were not public documents. I regard the papers and documents withheld and addressed to me or intended for my use and action purely unofficial and private, and having reference to the performance of a duty exclusively mine. If I desired to take them into my custody, I might do so with entire propriety, and if I saw fit to destroy them, no one could complain. The requests and demands which by the score have for nearly three months been presented to the different departments of the government, whatever may be their form, have but one complexion. They assume the right of the Senate to sit in judgment upon the exercise of my exclusive discretion and executive function, for which I am solely responsible to the people from whom I have so lately received the sacred trust of office. My oath to support and defend the Constitution, my duty to the people who have chosen me to execute the powers of their great office and not to relinquish them, and my duty to the Chief Magistracy, which I must preserve unimpaired in all its dignity and vigor, compel me to refuse compliance with these demands. The message ended with the following haughty sentence. Neither the discontent of party friends nor the allurements constantly offered of confirmations of appointees conditioned upon the avowal that suspensions have been made on party grounds alone, nor the threat proposed in the resolutions now before the Senate that no confirmations will be made unless the demands of that body be complied with, are sufficient to discourage or deter me from following in the way which I am convinced leads to better government for the people. The boldness and vigor with which the President thus asserted his prerogative astounded the Republican senators. They found themselves in the very hole into which they had gleefully expected to put Mr. Cleveland. Just what to do they did not know. They had no means of coercing the President of the United States, and his calm indifference to the senatorial dignity was as unpleasant as it was novel in their experience. They argued and debated. But finally, in a sheepish, shamefaced way, they came to the conclusion that nothing whatsoever could be done but swallow the medicine which the President had administered. Note 22. Page 86. One of their number, however, took an oratorical revenge. This was Senator Ingalls of Kansas. Mr. Ingalls was a very brilliant, fluent speaker possessing a voluminous vocabulary of bitterness. A tall, thin, cynical-looking man, with a power of emitting words which scorched like drops of vitriol, he never failed to command the attention of his colleagues and of the public. He let it be known that he was about to scarify the administration with regard to its pretensions to reform. When he arose in his place on March 28th, both the floor of the Senate and the galleries were crowded. Speaking slowly, in order that every shaft might surely find its mark, he delivered an address which was a masterpiece of studied malice. First of all, he spoke of the attitude of his own party. They believe, and I believe, that for the past quarter of a century, upon every vital issue before the American people, 
secession, slavery, coercion, the public credit, honest elections, universal freedom, and the protection of American labor, they have always been right and that their opponents have always been wrong. And while they concede unreservedly patriotism and sincerity to their adversaries, temporary repulse has not convinced them that they were in error. There is neither defection nor dismay in their columns. They are ready, they are impatient to renew the battle. Animated by such impulses, it is not singular that they should feel that no Republican can hold an appoint of office under a Democratic administration without either sacrificing his convictions or forfeiting his self-respect. Accordingly, sir, when a little more than a year ago a Democratic administration was inaugurated, those who were in public station began, with one consent, to make excuse to retire to private life. They did not stand upon the order of their going. They trampled upon each other in a tumultuous and somewhat indecent haste to get out of office. There was no craven cry for mercy. No mercenary camp follower fled for shelter to the bomb-proofs of the Tenure of Office Act. No settler crawled behind the fragile breastworks of civil service reform for protection. They lost their baggage, but they retained their colors, their arms, their ammunition, and their camp equipage, and marched off the field with the honors of war. If, at the expiration of one year, a few yet remain in office, Rarinantes and Gorgeti Vasto, it is because the victors have been unable to agree among themselves, or been unable to discover among their own number competent and qualified successors. Speaking of the President, he said, Sir, I am not disposed to impugn the good faith, the patriotism, the sincerity, the many unusual traits and faculties of the President of the United States. He is the sphinx of American politics. It is said that he is a fatalist, that he regards himself as the child of fate, the man of destiny, and that he places devout and implicit reliance upon the guiding influence of his star. Certainly, whether he be a very great man or a very small man, he is a very extraordinary man. His career forbids any other conclusion. Then he paid his respects to the advocates of reform. In his sentences were concentrated the hatred and contempt which the vindictive partisan feels for all who exercise an independent judgment in politics. Mr. President, the neuter gender is not popular either in nature or society. Male and female created he them. But there is a third sex, if sex that can be called which sex has none, resulting sometimes from a cruel caprice of nature, at others from accident or malevolent design possessing the vices of both and the virtues of neither, effeminate without being masculine or feminine, unable either to beget or to bear, possessing neither fecundity nor virility, endowed with the contempt of men and the derision of women, and doomed to sterility, isolation, and extinction. But they have two recognized functions. They sing falsetto, and they are usually selected as the guardians of the seraglios of oriental despots. Geology teaches us that in the process of being upward from the protoplasmic cell, through one form of existence to another, there are intermediary and connecting stages, in which the creature bears some resemblance to the state from which it has emerged and some to the state to which he is proceeding. History is stratified politics. Every stratum is fossiliferous. 
and I am inclined to think that the political geologist of the future, in his antiquarian researches between the Triassic series of 1880 and the Cretaceous series of 1888, as he inspects the Jurassic democratic strata of 1884, will find some curious illustrations of the doctrine of political evolution. In the transition from the fish to the bird, there is an anomalous animal long since extinct, named by the geologist the pterodactyl, or winged reptile, a lizard with feathers upon its paws and plumes upon its tail. A political system which illustrates in its practical operations the appointment by the same administration of Eugene Higgins and Dorman B. Eaton can properly be regarded as in the transition epoch and characterized as the pterodactyl of politics. It is, like that animal, equally adapted to waddling and dabbling in the slime and mud of partisan politics, and soaring aloft with discordant cries into the glittering and opalescent empyrean of civil service reform. Note 23, page 89 A sufficient answer to the jibes of Mr. Ingalls was given a few days later by the organization of the new Civil Service Commission which, aided by the President in every way, now entered upon its work. A definite plan for promotion was perfected. Rigorous investigations were conducted, and these unearthed many violations of the law. A Republican was appointed chief examiner. The bitter discussion in the Senate had served to rivet public attention upon this important question, and sentiment in favor of the reform was strengthened and extended every day. Much feeling was excited in the spring of 1886 by the President's attitude toward private pension bills. That the military pension system had been grossly abused was perfectly well known to everyone. Neither party, however, possessed the courage to eradicate these abuses. The Republicans had always officially posed as the friends of the veteran. The Democrats knew that if they took unfavorable action upon pension bills, they would be accused of disloyalty and of hatred to the soldiers of the Union. The result was that disbursements for pensions had increased with startling rapidity. Thus, in 1866, the number of pensioners was 126,722, and the amount paid to them annually was $15,450,550. In 1875, there were 234,821 pensioners receiving annually $29,270,407. At that time, General Garfield declared in the House of Representatives that the expenditures for pensions had reached their maximum and thereafter might be expected to decrease. Congress, however, passed a so-called Arrears of Pension Act, giving to each pensioner back pay from the time when his disability had been first incurred. At once, the expenditures were almost doubled. In 1885, the pensioners numbered 345,125, and the annual sum paid them was $65,171,937. The Pension Bureau was administered in a spirit of extravagant liberality. Pensions were granted to individuals whose claims were ludicrous and at times outrageous. Men who had been dishonorably discharged were on the pension list. Others who had met with injuries from accidents while drunk were likewise favored. Pensions had actually been bestowed upon malingerers who had shot off their own fingers in order to escape from service in the army. Yet even the Pension Bureau had felt that somewhere it must draw the line, and therefore many applications were rejected. Unsuccessful claimants, therefore, got into the habit of embodying their claims in private bills which were sent to Congress for special action. 
These bills were hastily rushed through both houses without the slightest reference to their merits. It is recorded that on a single day the Senate once passed five hundred private pension bills at a sitting. President Cleveland made up his mind that this sort of thing must stop. He began to make a careful study of each private pension bill that came before him, going into all the evidence with the scrupulous care of a trained lawyer. It became at once apparent that many claimants for pensions were no better than swindlers, and therefore on May 8th he sent to Congress the first of a series of veto messages, a series which was continued throughout that session. These messages were brief, pungent, and often tinged with sarcasm, and when collected they made very interesting reading as throwing light upon the fraudulent character of many pension claims. We are dealing, wrote Mr. Cleveland, with pensions not with gratuities and even had it been a question of gratuities, there was little reason for favorable action upon many of the bills. Some of the claimants were shown to have deserted from the army. One had fallen while getting over a fence, but had absolutely no trace of any injury upon his person. Another asked for a pension because he had hurt his ankle while intending to enlist. Another based his application upon the fact that, sixteen years after the conclusion of the war, he had fallen from a ladder and fractured his skull. Still another had broken his leg in a ditch while gathering dandelions long after the war. A widow asked for a pension because her husband had died of heart disease in 1881, a circumstance which she ascribed to a wound in the ankle received in 1863. Absurd as were these and many other claims, the fact that the President rejected them was made the basis of a charge of hostility to the veterans of the Civil War. The merits of each case had little weight with those opponents who cared nothing for the truth, but who sought to bring discredit on the President. As a matter of fact, many of his vetoes were in the interests of the very persons whose claims he set aside. In several instances, widows of soldiers had carelessly sought relief through a pension bill when the granting of such relief would have cut them off from a far more liberal treatment through the regular channels of the Pension Bureau. Note 24, page 92. The President, therefore, by his vigilance, not only detected and exposed dishonesty, but he performed a real service to many worthy persons. In all, he vetoed one pension bill in every seven, or about one hundred in the aggregate, and only one of these bills was ever passed over the President's veto. Early in 1886, the rumor went abroad that Mr. Cleveland was about to end his bachelorhood. This rumor naturally excited widespread interest and caused a temporary cessation of party strife. Only one president had ever been married during his term of office, and never had the wedding of a president taken place in the White House. Note 25, page 92. Before long it became known that the report was true, and that an engagement existed between Mr. Cleveland and Miss Frances Folsom, the daughter of his former law partner. At the time when the engagement was announced, Miss Folsom was in Europe, but she presently returned and became the object of an immense amount of friendly curiosity. Mr. Cleveland had been her guardian after her father's death, and it was said that the two had begun to take a sentimental interest in one another after certain gossips had spread a premature and quite unfounded story of their betrothal. Miss Folsom at this time was twenty-two years of age. She was a tall and graceful girl with manners that were at once dignified and winning. Her cordiality was sincere, and she was always tactful and from the day when she first became known to the American people she remained deservedly a universal favorite. Following the usage which prevails with rulers of nations, the President was married in his official residence rather than at the house of his bride. 
The wedding took place in the evening of the 2nd of June in the Blue Room, in the presence of a small but distinguished company, including most of the members of the cabinet. The ceremony was carried out with perfect taste, and the only incidents which suggested an official wedding were the presidential salute of twenty-one guns fired from the arsenal and a message of congratulation from the Queen of Great Britain, which was received just as the President and his bride were taking their departure. They went by special train to a cottage which had been placed at their disposal at Deer Park in the mountains of Maryland. Public interest in the marriage was so great that the press of the country went far beyond the limits of what was permissible. On the following morning, the President was astonished to find that a pavilion had been reared directly opposite his cottage, and that a throng of newspaper correspondents were collected there, provided with field-glasses, so as not to lose even the slightest detail which a bold-eyed curiosity could discover. This annoying espionage continued for several days, and fully justified some biting sentences which were written with regard to the editors who permitted such a breach of elemental courtesy. They have used the enormous power of the modern newspaper to perpetrate and disseminate a colossal impertinence, and have done it, not as professional gossips and tattlers, but as the guides and instructors of the public in conduct and morals. And they have done it not to a private citizen, but to the President of the United States, thereby lifting their offense into the gaze of the whole world, and doing their utmost to make American journalism contemptible in the estimation of people of good breeding everywhere. Note 26, page 94. Congress adjourned on August 5, 1886. It had of necessity enacted no measure regarding which there was a difference of opinion between the two parties. A tariff bill had been prepared by the Democrats of the House, but no action had been taken upon it. On the other hand, the question of the presidential succession had at last been definitely settled by a law which named the vice-president and the secretaries of the departments in the order of their establishment to succeed in the event of the disability or death of those preceding them. Another bill, providing for an increase of the Navy, passed both houses and received the signature of the president. This Naval Appropriation Act was long afterwards pronounced historic by a Republican secretary of the Navy. Note 27. Page 94. It authorized the building of a battleship, the Texas, an armored cruiser, the Maine, a protected cruiser, the Baltimore, a dynamite cruiser, the Vesuvius, and a torpedo boat, the Cushing. In this way, new and wholly modern types of warships were introduced into the American Navy, and of these vessels every one was destined to be remembered in the nation's history. President Cleveland had by this time become thoroughly well known to all his countrymen. In some ways he had disappointed a section of his party. He had not altogether satisfied the expectations of the independent voters, but he had made no serious mistakes, and he had given to his followers a positive and definite policy to take the place of a purely negative, critical attitude, which for twenty years had brought them nothing but disaster. Both as a man and as a statesman his fame had grown. Few doubted his sincerity of purpose, his integrity of character, or his indomitable courage. In November 1886, Harvard University celebrated the 250th anniversary of its foundation. President Cleveland accepted an invitation to attend the ceremonies as a guest of the University and of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Accompanied by the governor and escorted by a body of lancers, he proceeded to Cambridge, where he was received at the Sanders Theatre by President Eliot. Note 28, page 95. 
No such gathering had hitherto been seen upon this continent, representing as it did all that was most distinguished in American art and literature, in statesmanship, in science, and in learning. In the presence of this brilliant assemblage, James Russell Lowell, the greatest of American men of letters then living, delivered an address which for its tone of rare distinction still remains a masterpiece, starred with felicitous allusions and pregnant with suggestive thought. Toward the close he spoke a few graceful words of welcome to the guests of the university, and then at the last, turning to the most illustrious guest of all, he said, There is also one other name of which it would be indecorous not to make exception. You all know that I can only mean the President of our Republic. His presence is a signal honor to us all, and to us all, I may say, a personal gratification. We have no politics here, but the sons of Harvard all belong to the party which admires courage, strength of purpose, and fidelity to duty, and which respects wherever he may be found the Eustimet tenacem propositi virum, who knows how to withstand the Civium ardo prava jubentium. He has left the helm of state to be with us here, and so long as it is entrusted to his hands we are sure that, should the storm come, he will say with Seneca's pilot, O Neptune, you may sink me if you will, you may save me if you will, but whatever happen, I shall keep my rudder true. Note 29, page 96 End of chapter 2